1: Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And uh, we've got an interesting accident we're going to be talking about today involving a twin engine Cessna 310R. Uh, Before we get into that, um, I think this is going to be a good show because in the past, the three of us have talked and dissected other accidents where we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, at least you two. Uh, when you looked at this accident, it drew your attention to, man, the NTSB may have done some good work here. They, they put a lot of effort into it. And um, well, we're going to find out if they actually did. So I know, Todd, that uh, you've, uh, you've pulled this accident, you've dissected it along with John. And, uh, and so I'll, why don't you just give the, uh, the viewers and the listeners just a thumbnail about the history of flight before we get into the total discussion?
2: Will do. And before I do that, apologies for not having my hat on. I'm in the Western studios of uh, airsafe.com, so I don't have my uh, flight safety detectives hat. But
1: Yeah, well, we expect you to tattoo flight safety detectives (laughs) on your forehead. Then whether you have a hat on or not, we'll always have flight safety detectives on the front of your face.
2: And I should have some signage on the back wall here. So even without the hat, we know who we're talking with. That's right. But the accident in question happened back in 2010. This is in Palo Alto, California. It was a Cessna 310 with three people on board, a pilot and two passengers, uh, taking off from Palo Alto for a trip down to Los Angeles. And shortly after takeoff, in very limited visibility conditions, the aircraft hit a power line and crashed in a neighborhood. Fortunately, no one was killed. But the conditions were, uh, no, near- no one
1: was killed in the neighborhood
2: in the neighborhood. Yeah. It was near zero uh, visibility conditions we're talking vertical visibility of 100 feet. The control tower couldn't even see the aircraft on the runway, and it was an instrument um, clearance, but uh, surprisingly, at least to me, the controller basically said, "I can't release you because I can't see you, but if you would like to take off, it will be at your own risk." And there was an instrument uh, clearance to take off and turned to the right, and climbed to 3,000 feet. But instead, for reasons that we'll get into later, uh, the pilot, for whatever reason, turned r- left instead of right, hit a power uh, line at 50 feet off the ground, and crashed. So the, that's the what. The why? Well, we'll get into that later.
1: And, and when you guys looked at this report, and just with, uh, with the comments that you made about the history of flight, of course, it already raises questions in my mind, um, a lot of questions as an investigator. But I know that uh, you, when you looked at it, you thought that the report was well done and, and methodically investigated. What was so good about this report that you know brought you to at least that conclusion up until I started asking questions?
2: Well, back in 2010, when this happened, this was on the news and I heard about it shortly thereafter. And at the time, my interest was primarily in large jet uh, airliner type events. But this one stood out because there was something unusual technologically about the event. There was a, a system in place in the city where this happened, East Palo Alto, where law enforcement had a series of gunshot detection microphones, which were there designed to detect gunshots in a neighborhood and triangulate it. But there were four of these Uh, microphones which caught sounds of the crash and these were actually used in the NTSB investigation to among other things determine the speed of the aircraft at impact so from that perspective i thought well gosh this might be one of the first times that we see technology outside of what's usually done for accident investigations uh, radar tracks etc being used in an accident and fast forward 12 years just about any accident that happens, anywhere near a populated area, there's gonna be security cameras, mobile phones, all sorts of other information. You have flight tracking websites that track ADSB, So anything happens in the modern age, it's hard to hide it from official or unofficial sources. And when I saw this in 2010, I thought, wow, I should write about this because that might be important. But after talking with you gentlemen, I think there's a whole lot more things here that are far more important.
3: Well, one of the things that I saw that stood out right away with this report was how much documentation they gave about the on-scene portion of the investigation. Very, very detailed examination of the throttles, all the positions of the flight controls, everything that you could possibly uh, gather from an on-scene investigation seemed to have been mentioned in the report. And they also went into great detail with the engine teardowns, which were sent back to the manufacturer under the uh, guiding eyes of the NTSB, and also the propellers uh, with the NTSB representatives uh, there for the teardowns. So they had great detail about that uh, element of the investigation, which is quite different from what we see today. And, uh, and again don't have all the detail with the pilots. So even though that piece of the of the puzzle, they seem to do a good job of, there's other pieces that uh, leave something to be desired. Well,
1: when when you look at the history of flight, in the history of flight, did they talk about what the purpose of the flight was? Um, These were three Tesla motor employees. Um, Did they talk about any of the background with regard to, you know, the purpose of them traveling together, where they go into a meeting, um, because one of the things that we're going to be talking about later on is, you know, was there some level of self-induced pressure for this pilot to make a decision? Because we're going to talk about aeronautical decision making uh, given the weather conditions. Was there any discussion about the background of and the purpose of the of the flight?
2: There was nothing in the NTSB report that specifically talked about the motivations of why they were flying, but. Other media reports at the time said that they were going down to Los Angeles for some sort of meeting, and these were, uh, again, three Tesla employees. There was only one pilot on board that was the accident pilot. And then, if you read,
3: yeah. if you read the ATC uh, tapes, uh,
1: it does seem like he's pushing to get out. And so, and that's a concern that we're going to be talking about. So. Then when it comes to describing the pilot, how did the, how did the NTSB describe the pilot with, uh, with his background qualifications and experience?
2: Well, they said that this was a commercial pilot who was also rated as an instructor, who had 2,900 hours total, which is a fairly substantial amount of time for a non-professional pilot. Uh, and this, is, this, this was this person's personal aircraft. So this person was very familiar with it. And presumably because he worked in the Palo Alto area, uh, this was very likely his home airport, or at least an airport that he had used on numerous occasions, which, by the way, only has about a 2,400-foot runway. That didn't figure into the accident investigation, but that's a relatively short runway compared to at least what I'm used to flying out of.
1: Yep, me too. John, when uh, when you looked at that, I mean, was there anything that stood out about the pilot, given the fact that he is operating in instrument meteorological conditions, uh, but given is qualifications and, and and experience. Is there anything that caught your attention?
3: Uh, not really. He did a biannual review, uh, and there's no comments on that. And he also did a uh, a uh, instrument flight check just a short time before the accident. So on paper, he looks like he's very qualified.
1: Did the NTSB follow up with the person or organization that did his IPC?
3: No indication of that in the
1: report or in the public docket. And, and and that becomes a concern, which, again, we'll talk about later on. That becomes a concern for me, because if he got it a short time before this accident and he's taking off into instrument meteorological conditions, why did he lose the airplane so bad? So. Again, okay, there's another question and <laughs> amongst many. And then in the description, John, like you were talking about, they fully examined the airplane, and the, the hardware part of it. Um, John, when you were talking about the examination of the wreckage, was there anything that the board looked at with regard to instrumentation um, that would have given some hint as to why the pilot turned left? Was there anything with an artificial horizon or an HSI or something? That would have uh, given away why he would have not, you know, dis, uh, ascended to three thousand feet and made a right turn, but he made it immediately made a left turn at such a low altitude.
3: Well, they mentioned in the in the report that they, the physical examination of the of the steam gauges on the airplane showed that he was eighty five thousand feet. Uh, so the slap marks, so the the instruments were going crazy. Uh, so the slot marks gave gave indications of of uh, at the time of impact, they'd already been suffering some sort of trauma and not indic- indicating it. that may have come from the impact with the uh, power lines on the pole and but no reference whatsoever to any of the navigation equipment.
1: And then, Todd, I know that you looked, uh, you were looking at the ATC. Besides the transcript, did they have any kind of radar data? Had this guy popped up high enough to be picked up on radar yet?
2: There had been nothing in radar. However, because of those gunshot cameras I mentioned, they explicitly used several of those to triangulate where the aircraft was and to also using Doppler shift analysis to figure out how fast it was going. And so they were able to put a fairly accurate. Um, depiction of the track of the aircraft, and again, it was uh, going about uh, 200 knots when it impacted the tower, the tower of the electrical lines, and about 50 feet off the ground. So had it not been for that, given that this is an aircraft that didn't have a cockpit voice recorder or flight data recorder, they would have had to uh, do more guesswork on that.
1: Well, the thing that immediately comes to mind after you say that is, how that airplane got to 200 knots in such a very short period of time. Why is it 50 feet uh, doing that? Did he go up and then, you know, push over, you know, push the nose over, um, which increased his speed and he descended into uh, those power lines versus climbed into those power lines versus flew level into those power lines. I mean, getting, I mean, immediately after takeoff, even in a Cessna 310, and he was not that far from the airport. What, a quarter, half mile, something about like that? that?
2: It was about 14 seconds from passing over the departure end of the runway to hitting the power lines.
1: So now the question is, how do you get to 200 knots in 14 seconds? I mean, that's just, especially when you just uh, rotated and are technically in a climb attitude. How do you get to 200 knots in that airplane? That is, that is very fast for that airplane shortly after takeoff like that. Even if you push the nose over that airplane still has to accelerate. He didn't have a lot of distance to accelerate. So here are the questions. And if there's nothing in the report, which apparently it sounds like there isn't, okay, now you got to answer some questions. And then on top of all of that, um, what did they talk about the weather? Did they identify how thick that fog bank was since it was characterized as fog?
2: The report that was in here and also the transcript from the air traffic controller didn't mention the thickness of the layer, just the vertical visibility was, I believe, 100 feet and an eighth, less than an eighth of a mile or roughly an eighth of a mile uh, uh, horizontal
1: visibility. And- John, were there uh, were there any PIREPs that you guys read? No, none. none. So we don't know really anything other than what's been reported of a vertical visibility of 100 feet and a horizontal visibility of, uh, what, Nathan: eighth of, mile, eighth of mile. So again, under Part 91, you got to look at the regulatory requirements. Technically, a general aviation Part 91 pilot can take off in zero, zero fog. There is no minima that uh, that stops them other than good judgment. And um, And did the board talk about any kind of human factors? Did they talk about spatial disorientation? Did they talk about anything from a, a physiological standpoint that would have either affected uh, or influenced the, not only this pilot's decision-making, but controllability of the airplane as far as him you know, turning left versus climbing and turning right. The only thing indirectly that I saw was
2: that his medical certificate, second class uh, medical certificate, required that he wear corrective lenses. There is no mention in the report whether or not that he was or was not wearing corrective lenses. And uh, again,
1: that, that's an open question. And John, when when you read the uh, the, the report, I presume that um, like Todd just talked about, they really didn't get any additional information. Did they talk about any procedures stuff with, uh, with ATC? I mean, I just find it very curious that it's one thing to tell a pilot, hey, I can't give you a, a takeoff clearance because I can't see you. I don't know where you are because of the fog being so bad. But have at it. do whatever you want. The risk is yours. See you later. Have a fun day.
3: Not a word. You know, I I focused in on that that clearance that he
1: gave him saying,
3: you can do whatever you want.
1: I can't tell you what to do. I I just find that I I just find that astonishing that a controller would make a comment like that rather than just say, I can't give you a takeoff clearance, um, you know, because I can't see you. and and either recommend I recommend you don't go anywhere, but I can't. But you don't encourage him going. Hey, but you could take off at your own risk. Have at it. See you later. No, I, I, I would I would just would have expected the NTSB to at least have one of their ATC guys examine that kind of issue with other issues, and say, you know, that fell within the the seventy one ten sixty five controller handbook, or we got an issue with what he said There is
2: one thing that they left out that confused me a bit and i'm jumping ahead here and the probable cause they mentioned that uh, the pilots failure to follow the standard instrument departure as instructed well there was a transcript from the air traffic controller that clearly stated a departure but there's nothing in the documentation that says whether or not this was a standard departure for the airport so i'm not sure what they meant by that
1: well, you know, when you have a SID, a standard instrument departure, it's depicted, it's a, it's a prescribed procedure. And the pilot is expected to follow that prescribed procedure. And, and so part of your clearance is, uh, they're gonna give you the, the particular SID that they want you to follow up to a certain point, And, you know, you're gonna then proceed on course. So again, if that was an actual SID departure that he was given, then there should have been a, a readback clearance for that particular SID. Um, did the NTSB use proper terminology when they were describing that? Because you know, just getting an instrument clearance is not "quote" standard, unless, of course, it's a prescribed standard standard instrument departure.
2: And unfortunately, there's nothing in the public docket that is a, a standard instrument departure, or even any mention of anything other than and there's the nothing in the
1: and there's nothing in the report that that shows or talks about it just the one mentioned in the probable cause
2: statement and nothing else
1: after that john
3: uh, go (laughs) ahead the tower tapes and there isn't a report on that
1: i i just i find that amazing because there's so much information since we don't have radar and at that time we didn't have adsb but since we don't have radar information you would have expected that they would have dissected the air traffic communications and because, well, there's a lot of questions to be answered, but what was the, uh, what was the probable cause that the NTSB came up with after all of this work that they did? Well, let me read you
2: the full statement. The um, yeah, National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable causes of this accident to be the pilot's failure, there's literally their words, the pilot's failure follow the standard instrument departure as instructed, and his failure to attain a sufficient altitude to maintain clearance from power lines during takeoff and instrument meteorological conditions. Okay, there was a slight grammatical error in their statement, but it had no effect on the two statements. One, failure to follow the standard instrument departure, and two, failure to attain a sufficient altitude to maintain clearance from power lines during takeoff and instrument meteorological conditions. One comment he was told to turn right, he went left. So there would not have been a requirement to avoid uh, the power lines if he turned right, so.
1: And I'm gonna tell you what I always tell you when you read or we read these kinds of probable causes, that's the most ridiculous probable cause I've ever heard amongst all the other ones when we dissect these accidents for the very reason is that you didn't need to leave the office to come up with that. It's obvious that he failed to maintain some sort of altitude for obstruction clearance. Why was he in an area of obstruction when that's not what a clearance was that was given to him? Because he should have never been near those power lines had he followed the you know climb to 3000 feet, make a right turn. So that makes, I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, to come up with something that simplistic. And then the second part of that, Um, that you were talking about to fail, fail to follow the the standard instrument departure, that is something totally different than just receiving a clearance to climb and make a right turn. So you need to dissect, they should have dissected uh, those two things. But if that's the only thing they could come up with, then this truly even if they wrote a diatribe, of all sorts of fluff information that went into the report to show how much work they did. It's obvious that when you filter out fact from fiction, there isn't a lot of information to address just some of the subjects we talked about. And we're gonna dissect this accident uh, further. So in the next show, we're gonna talk about the things that they didn't do and they didn't talk about in depth because this is not, in my view, Regardless of how many words they wrote on a piece of paper, this is not a complete, thorough and methodical investigation in my book. It may be different with you guys, but just from what you've told me, this doesn't serve general aviation or the aviation public in giving us lessons learned. I agree. I mean, it's it's one thing and and you and I, uh, the three of us have seen these when we read these reports, there are investigators that will shotgun when I was uh, when I was a unit supervisor and a regional director and I read reports from other investigators, um, they'd write a lot of stuff in these reports. And it's like, well, what part of this report is actually pertinent to supporting a probable cause and any recommendations? You put a lot of stuff in here. That's great. I called it shotgunning because they threw a lot of stuff in there. One, I think sometimes to show me how much work they supposedly did, but a lot of it never had any pertinent uh, basis for supporting a probable cause. Um, I live by the premise of, of accurate thinking, accurate thinking involving both inductive and deductive reasoning. And there's a, a huge difference between the two. Um, As investigators, we want to live in the deductive reasoning world because that is based on uh, fact or scientific fact uh, versus inductive where you're coming up with pet theories and and hypotheticals and and things that you perceive as fact yet aren't fact. And a lot of these reports that I read lately and that the three of us have dissected on this show is not not only inductive reasoning, but it's a poor... (laughs) It it really is a poor effort of inductive reasoning. And it it shouldn't be that way. Acts investigation is based on the facts, condition and circumstances. And it's asking why until you can't ask why anymore. And we've gone through this process. John and I have dissected it a thousand times as to what investigators should be doing from a process standpoint. And this in my book is a classic example. We've just talked about, well, why did he turn left? Well, you got to figure out why he turned left and why he didn't climb greater than 50 or 60 feet and why he's going 200 knots 14 seconds after takeoff when, in fact, he is a commercial certificated pilot with an instrument rating and a uh, flight instructor rating and he just got an IPC shortly before the accident. What is going on? And then, of course, uh, you know there are a number of other questions that, uh, that I'm going to ask you guys because I'm putting you on the spot. You guys are the flight safety detective crew. So I'm gonna put you guys on the spot in the next show when we try to answer some of these questions and actually identify things that should have been looked at that weren't addressed in this report.
3: All right, having said that,
1: tune in next week. (laughs) Now, now, see, now you're just taking over the show, John. without thinking about our other colleague. Before you get to the final word, John, we have to allow Todd to at least give us the second to the last word.
2: Well, I have a couple of words uh, for this. Uh, First off, when I first saw this 10 years, 12 years ago, I was attracted by the shiny objects. Like, ooh, there's something here that I've never seen an accident report, the sound study. Well, years later, and it has been years later, I have become a little bit more mature about looking at these. I always look for other information from the media, from the public docket, and now I'm getting really good information from my colleagues. So going from, let's go for the, sh- for the shiny object, to let's go for more data, to let's, let's ask ourselves some really deep, thoughtful, and relevant questions, and come back to this as many times as necessary for us to learn from it.
1: Now, John, now that we've gotten those golden words from Todd, we will now leave you with our final words.
3: And my final words are the same, because I'm tired of seeing the accidents that come out of events where the pre-flight, the pre-planning wasn't done very well, the weather review wasn't done very well, the pre-flight inspection of the airplane wasn't done very well. And when they get off the ground, they get glued to the instrument panel and forget, seeing a avoid is so important. And all of those come together the minute you step in the cockpit. So if you're going to go fly your airplane, do good pre-planning from home or from the hotel, redo it at the airport, recheck your weather, both where you're leaving from, where you're going and in between. And when you get your airplane, do a good pre flight. We have seen accidents uh, galore with pre flights that weren't done very well and, and defects that should have been detected and weren't and, and resulted in, oftentimes in fatalities. So you got to pay attention to all the details before you go flying. And remember, the head on a swivel as soon as you take off is very, very important. You know, going down the runway, looking for mid uh, collisions, mid-airs are are on the ground. We see it all too often. And even in commercial airplanes, we've seen it uh, with too much frequency. So it's a hell of a responsibility that you've undertaken to get your pilot's license. It requires you to use your head. And uh, all too often, I'm seeing cases where the, the head is not being used productively. So. Please remember all those details and fly safely.
0: To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.